you are now listening to the July 29th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the Screw Tape Letters, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with the Screw Tape Letters. everyone, my name is Terry from our ongoing program, A Christian Who Reads Book. We have been reflecting on the Screw Tape Letters. It is written by C.S. Lewis, who is considered one of the greatest apologists of the 20th century. As we discussed before, this book features two devils, an experienced devil called Screw Tape and his nephew, a novice devil called Wormwood. Screw Tape writes letters to help his nephew grow as a devil. Screwtape offers advices to Wormwood on how to bring his patients to their side, which would mean success for the devils, but a downfall for the patient. In the book, patients represent the human that each devil is responsible for. The devil's job would be to tempt them and to ensure that they do not become good Christians. Keep in mind that when the book mentions the enemy, it refers to Jesus Christ, given that the letters are written from the perspective of the devils. In the last session, Tape advised Wormwood on prayers. He emphasized the importance of leading a patient to pray in a wrong way rather than preventing them from praying altogether. In other words, having them pray in a way that is not genuine is more important than preventing them from praying. Perhaps you have experienced such attacks in the past. I hope we remain vigilant and continue to pray truthfully. In today's letter, Screwtape talks about the war. In particular, Screwtape chastises Wormwood for being naive about the effects of war on patients. As a novice devil, Wormwood is delighted at the idea of a war, because as a devil, he would naturally find pleasure in seeing the suffering and confusion of human souls caught in war. However, his uncle Screwtape warns him not to become too caught up in the momentary pleasure and to stay focused on their patience, lest he might miss opportunities to exploit them. Screwtape explains to Wormwood that they need to be more vigilant during the war, as it is a time when people turn their focus on the enemy and strengthen their faith. He explains further. Screwtape points out that foremost, war brings patience a new perspective on life, so that those who previously showed interest only in themselves may shift their attention to higher and nobler things. In other words, when a war breaks out, people may rise above their usual concern, such as job worries, loan worries, and stress from human relationships, and start thinking about more fundamental things. When people start to think about more fundamental things, they would likely get closer to the truth that God represents, so the devil should be careful. When a war becomes a reality in the lives of believers, they will look and think more about love, life, death, and truth, things that are not visible but that really matter. Consequently, the devil's job at that point is to manipulate the patients not to think about those fundamental things that might bring them closer to the enemy. As a second point, Screwtape raises the question about the undesirable death that inevitably happens in a war. Of course, here the term undesirable is spoken from the devil's perspective. Although we may think that devils would rejoice at the sight of many people dying in a war, we see that Screwtape argues otherwise. 
During the war, everyone comes close to the possibility of death, and the idea of dying appears more immediate. From the devil's perspective, this is not a favorable situation. When people live in comfort without lacking anything, they tend to behave as if they would live forever. In such a state, there is no reflection or repentance. However, in situations where death looms large, such as in a war, people are pressed to prepare themselves for it, and they begin to take religion more seriously. In other words, when death becomes a reality, people are likely to look back on their lives and think more about what would happen after death. As a result, they may repent and seek Jesus Christ and prepare to meet God. This is what Screwtape calls a complete preparation for death. Screwtape speaks to Wormwood how, for the devils, it is much better for a patient to die quietly in a luxurious nursing home than to die in a war. Of course, we are not saying that nursing homes are a bad place for Christians. Luxurious nursing home referenced here is not a specific place but rather an expression of the comfortable life that people constantly pursue. When exposed to such a life for a long time, people can easily become spiritually complacent, and as a result, their desire to seek the truth decreases, making them spiritually weak and easy for devils to move in to perform their work. In other words, when patients are suffering, devils are on alert because their patients might turn to the Lord. In contrast, if they are in comfort and unconcerned, the condition works better for the devils because they can deceive people more easily and manipulate them. In fact, as we look back on our lives, we may discover when we faced difficulties, we prayed more earnestly. We prayed wholeheartedly even without anyone asking us to do so. But when we were too comfortable, we often become complacent and made excuses. In fact, that was a vulnerable moment in our lives. We might have become spiritually dull, like getting wet in a drizzle, without realizing it. In general, suffering makes us go to God and rely only on Him, but complacency makes us move away from God. Devil knows this very well. Lastly, Screwtape is concerned that war would make people constantly think about death. The devils are happy when a patient is satiated with worldly things. However, during a war, the condition is different. In such extreme situations where deaths are all around them, patients are not likely to indulge in worldly pleasures. To the contrary, patients would realize how futile and meaningless the world is. At that moment, the blindfold of materialism is lifted and they begin to see what matters more. The contemplation of death can become a turning point that makes people realize the futility of money, fame, and power. They would think more seriously about the state of their spiritual well-being and eternal truth. To close, I will now read an excerpt from Screwtape Letter. And how disastrous for us is the continual remembrance of death which war enforces. One of our best weapons, contented worldliness, is rendered useless. In wartime, not even a human can believe that he is going to live forever. I know that Scaptree and others have seen in wars a great opportunity for attacks on faith, but I think that view was exaggerated. The enemy's human partisans have all been plainly told by him that suffering is an essential part of what he calls redemption, so that a faith which is destroyed by war 
or a pestilence cannot really have been worth the trouble of destroying. I am speaking now of diffuse suffering over a long period, such as the war will produce. Of course, at the precise moment of terror, bereavement, or physical pain, you may catch your man when his reason is temporarily suspended. But even then, if he applies to enemy headquarters, I have found that the post is nearly always defended. If you've experienced a war, you can still picture the horrors of war. Shells raining down like rain, gunfire piercing the bitter cold, bodies bleeding to death, and the smell of blood. Wailing children, physical pain from hunger and cold, and mental trauma from the death of family members. War is an extreme situation where all these things happen almost simultaneously. Wars have been happening constantly for centuries due to human greed and self-interest. Even now, it has been happening for months in Ukraine due to the Russian invasion. While the devil uses these wars to try to snatch people away, war also brings those who know the truth closer to the truth and creates the possibility for those who don't know the truth to find it, and it even raises up those who want to encounter the truth. And I want us to remember that even in such extreme circumstances, our Lord protects us instantly and completely as long as we ask Him to save us. In any situation we face, God's attention and will are always with us. May we enjoy daily victory as we call upon the power of Jesus Christ, remembering that He is the sovereign Creator who is able to deliver us from any extreme circumstance. 1 Corinthians 5 9 through 10 says, Be steadfast in the faith, resisting him, knowing that your brethren in the world suffer the same things. But the God of all grace, who has called you in Christ Jesus, unto his eternal glory, is able to make you perfect and steadfast, strengthening and establishing you in your temporary affliction. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. So we're going to wrap up here for today, and we'll be back next time. Savior is Jesus my Lord, a wonderful Savior to me. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock, where rivers of pleasure I see. my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry thirsty land He hideth my life in the depths of His love and covers me there with His hand and
Jesus, my Lord, he taketh my burden away. He holdeth me up, and I shall not be moved. He giveth me strength as my day. When clothed in his brightness, Transported I rise to meet him in clouds of the sky. His perfect salvation, his wonderful love, I'll shout with a millions on Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Cavalry Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is a wow moment. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Well, when's the last time that you have seen something Ed said, wow, when's the last time? I say wow all the time. Of course, that's why my grands call me wow, right. Look at chapter 18 of the book of Acts, chapter 18, verse 24. Luke introduces us to somebody in chapter 24. Now a Jew named who? Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. So here we're introduced to Apollos, one of the greatest preachers of New Testament times. Apollos was his Greek name, but his Hebrew name would have been certainly Abel. Apollos had come to Ephesus from Alexandria, Egypt, about 52, 53 AD. That's kind of important because that date helps us understand what he was going through As a Hellenistic Jew, remember what a Hellenistic Jew is? It's a Jew that didn't live in Israel, but lived out of the country, and the world was in the Grecian world, was called a Hellenized world. So he was basically like a Greek, Greco-Roman Jew, not from Israel. So understanding the date will help me understand what was happening in Egypt. So... He had come to Ephesus from Alexandria, Egypt, 
like I said, around 52-53 AD, which would put it about 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And it says in our text, we'll get there, that he knew the teachings of John the Baptist. Now, about the town he came from, this large city he came from, it was founded, Alexandria was founded by, anybody got a guess? Yes, by Alexander the Great, about 300 years before Christ. And the city at this time had a population of over half a million people, which third largest city in the Roman world. Alexander the Great's conquest of the world was predicted in the scriptures in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 predicted Alexander the Great's armies, Greek, coming in and conquering the world. Now, here's the only connection we have with Alexander the Great with the Jews, but it's incredible. I was looking at the Jewish encyclopedia, and this is what I found. This will blow your mind. Alexander the Great and his armies conquered country after country and marched right into Palestine unopposed. As Alexander and his army were approaching Jerusalem, Yadua, the high priest, received a warning from God in a dream. In the dream, he saw himself wearing a purple robe, his miter that had the golden plate on which the name of God was engraved on his head. So he saw himself in all his priestly garments as a high priest. So as Alexander and his army were just outside of Jerusalem, he went out to meet Alexander, followed by all the priests clothed in fine linen and by a multitude of citizens. Yadua stood there waiting for the coming of the king. When Alexander saw the high priest, he reverenced God and saluted Yadua while the Jews with one voice uh, greeted Alexander. One of Alexander's general told him that the entire army couldn't believe that he would adore the high priest of the Jews. Alexander replied, I did not, I did not adore him, but the God who has honored him with this high priesthood. For I saw this very person in a dream in these same clothes when I was in Dios in Macedonia. In my dream, the very same person in these clothes, in my dream he told me to quickly move my army over the waters to Persia, and if I did that, I would have a great victory over that great empire. Ehuda the high priest, he had a dream that he should dress a certain way. When Alexander comes, he sees, that's the guy that was in my dream. So his army say, what, what's this with Alexander in, in not going in and just killing everybody? And Alexander said, no, this is a guy I saw that told me to start our mission, and we started to conquer the kingdom of Persia. He conquered the world. Listen to this. Alexander gave the high priest his right hand and went into the temple and offered sacrifice to God according to the high priest's direction, treating the whole priesthood magnificently. And when the book of Daniel was shown him, where Daniel predicted that one of the Greeks would destroy the Persian empire and he was the person God intended to use, he rejoiced. 
They took Alexander the Great and they opened up the scroll of the prophet Daniel and they showed him Daniel chapter 7, Daniel 8, uh, Daniel 11, where the prophecies concerning Alexander the Great were written. And Alexander just was like, are you? He had a, a, a wow moment, didn't he? A wow moment. Can you imagine? Well, the next day, Alexander asked the people what favors he should grant them. Hey, any, what do you want? And the high priest's request was that Alexander would give them the right to worship God without interference. What a request, right? And he also exempted them from paying tribute and even allowed any Jews who would want to join the army to be able to practice their religion without any interference also. When we've got Jews in Alexandria, we have... A lot of Jews in Alexandria, how did they get there? Well, when Alexander the Great was founding the city, he invited any Jews that wanted to come to come to the city and inhabit it, all right? So that's the beginning of Jewish history in Macedonia. It all goes back to Alexander, the dream the Lord gave the high priest, the dream Alexander had, the providence of the Lord in all of that. Is that amazing? That's amazing. Yes, yes. By Paulus' time, the population of this city was about 600,000. The city had been divided when it was built into five districts. The Jews were given a district that was a beautiful plot of land that was right near the palace. So again, you see Alexander the Great's favor upon the Jews. And so fifth of the population of Alexandria was Jewish. Some say even might have been a third of the population was Jewish. And while Apollos was growing up, the Jews could live wherever they wanted, and there were synagogues throughout the city. Uh, Some Jews even uh, became high officials in the city government, and the Jews could practice their religion without any kind of interference, and they didn't have to compromise with Gentiles. For centuries, Jewish scholarship thrived in Alexandria. In fact, do you know that the presence of the Jews in Alexandria has a direct effect on you right now? Do you know that? Well, you see, 300 years before Christ, 70 Jewish scholars met in Alexandria because Judaism was facing a crisis. The crisis was this. Most people living outside of Israel, which was most Jews, millions and millions of Jews living outside of Israel, could not read Hebrew, understand Hebrew, read Aramaic, or understand Aramaic. What they understood was Greek. And so you were having generations of people now beginning to not understand the word of God. And they knew how important it was to hear the word of God, right? I mean, the prophets and the old hear the word of the Lord, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Well, if you can't hear it and you can't understand it, then you got a lot of problem. And so what did they need to do? These 70 Jewish scholars met together And in 72 days, they translated the Hebrew scriptures and some Aramaic and the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, the language that people could understand 
And the new translation was called the translation of the 70 or the Septuagint, which means 70. So the translation of the 70 or the Septuagint has a direct impact on you and the Bible you're holding in one way or another because the Bible you have has been, the Septuagint has affected its translation. The Greek version of the Old Testament helps our translators better translate the manuscripts and all that we have. You have a Bible because there were 70 men who were concerned that God's people would hear his word, and it all happened in Apollos' city of Alexandria. So this is where Apollos is coming from. Great Jewish uh, learning, scholarship, uh, a home of Philo, a great Jewish philosopher and historian. And Alexandria also was home of the great library, largest library in the world. It contained every single book, every single manuscript, every single scroll that had ever been written that they could get a hold of. There was a copy of that. It's like the Library of Congress of the world, so to speak. 400,000 scrolls held there, even had a zoo an ancient zoo, priceless, irreplaceable ancient books of history, medicine, science, geography, philosophy. Uh, I've, I've read that Plato's original handwritten works were in that library. Amazing. Five years after Jesus' death, the first great persecution of the Jews of Alexandria broke out, about A.D. 38. It started when the Emperor Caligula uh, was questioning the loyalty of the governor of Egypt, who would have been the governor of Alexandria, too. So he sent the Jewish King Herod, King Herod Agrippa, to visit to Alexandria and see the governor. Now, this was a very bad idea. Okay, this is going to backfire in a huge way. So the Gentile population was offended that and began to deride Herod Agrippa as the king of the Jews, and soon both Jewish and Greek populations uh, were stirred up and riots uh, broke out, and the governor of Egypt was trying to pacify the Jews and Gentiles. He ordered that every synagogue have a statue of the emperor put in it. So he provoked the Jews, and uh, riots ensued, and then things turned very bad for the Jews. All Jewish civil rights were uh, suspended. Angry mobs forced all the Jews into their district, and then they began to systematically plunder the shops and to uh, kill, rape, uh, mangle in horrible ways to destroy the Jewish people, and the governor did nothing. He just let it happen. Finally, the persecution stopped, and for a time, life got back to new normal for the Jewish people in Alexandria. I'm telling you this because this is now near the time that Apollos is living in Alexandria. You understand? So this is stuff he's either heard about, riots not too long ago, 
or things that are happening very contemporary with him. There's a renewed anti-Semitism in AD 40. Riots broke out against the Jews because the Jews were accused of not being loyal to the emperor because, again, they wouldn't worship the images of the emperor. And so the riots and persecution of the Jews occurred again, but a new Roman emperor stopped that, and the Jews were at peace. Then there was a third wave of persecution in AD 66. So this whole time from 20 years after Jesus, 30 years after Jesus, to this next persecution is all the time that the ministry of the apostles and the book of Acts and the letters of Paul is going on. So this is all contemporary with Paulus. The next persecution that I said is in AD 66 was there were Jews in Alexandria, a very well-known, well-educated Jewish officials who were meeting together, a huge crowd of them in the amphitheater to discuss how they could show the emperor that they were loyal to him. And they were caught, trapped, and they were all massacred in the amphitheater. So we know where Apollos is coming from. He came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. I want to be like Apollos because it says he was competent in the scriptures. Maybe your, your Bible says he was mighty in the scriptures. New American Standard, he was mighty in the scriptures. What does it mean to be mighty in the scriptures? It means that he had a thorough knowledge of God's word. If there were a mighty in the scriptures scale of one to ten and Apollos was a ten, where would you place your scale, your, yourself on a scale of one to ten? Where would you place yourself? Apollos is a ten. A one is like a, a brand new a newbie that knows nothing about the Bible. Where are you on that scale of one to ten? Do you, anybody want to be higher on the scale? Want to raise your hand? Yeah, I want to be higher on the scale. Yes. I'm not an Apollos. I want to be higher on the scale. How do we get there? Well, first of all, you got to be saved. That's a no-brainer. You need to get a big picture of the Bible, and you've got to do what you know. Joshua chapter 1. Let's read verses 7 and 8 together. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Now, I know that the original intent is the commission, God's commission to Joshua, and he's talking about the the first five books of the Bible, the law, but it's speaking of the word of God, and we can certainly apply that to ourselves, can't we? And when we read this passage, we can say, this book of the law, this Bible shall not depart from your mouth. You should talk about it, but you shall meditate on it day and night. You should be thinking about the scripture. Get a scripture every morning. Read something in the Bible every morning, and there'll be something you read that'll stick with you. And think about that day and night. Take the word of God. Read some in the morning, some in the evening, day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. How can I know that I'm obeying the Lord if I don't know 
what obedience is all about, right? How can that scale increase if I don't know the word of God? For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. You following the word of God will be blessed. You'll be blessed. John Bruce writes, God speaks through the Bible to those who make the effort to listen. Good point. And because God knows everything, those who listen to God are blessed in all they do. The best investment of time and effort you can make is to master the scriptures and to be mastered by the scriptures because God blesses his word and those who take his word seriously. I like that. The best investment of time and effort you can make is to master the scriptures and to be mastered by the scriptures because God blesses his word. Ezra was a minor scribe who God used powerfully in the years following Israel's captivity in Babylon. And the Bible tells us that the good hand of God was upon Ezra, for he set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances of Israel. Bruce ends by saying, want to have a good, the good hand of God in your life? then do what Ezra did, set your heart to study the scriptures, to practice the scriptures, and to teach the scriptures, and which we see is what exactly Apollos did. So Apollos read the scriptures, he searched the scriptures, he understood the scriptures, and he lived the scriptures. So he's mighty in the word of God. Let's go back now to Acts chapter 18. Look at verse 25. Okay, Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately, and When he wished to come to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those uh, who through grace had believed, for he was powerfully refuting the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Messiah was Jesus. Verse 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in, in, in spirit. Fervent means literally burning. It means boiling. He's so excited about God's word, he is literally boiling, bubbling over with excitement for the word of God. Paulus was fervent in spirit. Underline that, you know, underline it, fervent in spirit. That's what I want to be. How about you guys? Oh, the Bible, whatever. No, I'm excited about the Bible. I'm excited to know that Alexander the Great was predicted in the scripture. And then in history, Alexander the Great got excited about that. I'm excited to know that my Bible prophecy comes true and I can trust my Bible. I learned that. If I hadn't read it, I wouldn't have known that. I'm excited about the Bible. Yes. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus through, uh, though he only knew the baptism of John. Now, he didn't know the full message of Jesus. He was accurately preaching the things he knew about Jesus. That's pretty clear, right? Wouldn't you say? 
And look, he didn't know it all. And we'll come to that in a second. But this is what I see. You don't have to know everything about Jesus or theology, but you can share what you do know. Amen? I don't know everything. You know, it's like, you know, when the blind man was healed and the Pharisees were like, who healed you? Hello, who did this? By whose authority? Were you healed on the Sabbath? And he says, you know what? I don't know exactly, you know, how it happened or even who it was, but all I can tell you is I was once blind, but now I see. That's my testimony. I don't know all, I don't know everything, but I once was lost, but now I'm saved. I once didn't know Jesus, but he's transformed my life. I can tell you that God loved the world. And if you can paraphrase scripture, that's okay. At least spirit doesn't care if you, you don't have to know exactly the address of everything you, you share with people, you know, the scriptural passage and address. You don't have to know that. Share what you know. You don't have to know everything. Just share what you know. What are the things that Paulus knew and was preaching? Well, this, as I've studied and I've read Bible commentaries, you always want to be careful because, of course, these people know more than I do. And, you know, you hate to challenge anybody, but I challenge the idea that Paulus didn't know enough about Jesus to be saved. It says he spoke and taught, verse 25, accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. So what does that mean? What would he have been teaching accurately about Jesus, though he only knew John? I thought, well, what if he only knew the message of John the Baptist? That's all that had gotten to him in Alexandria. I would have thought that on the day of Pentecost, Jews from all over the world were there, and some of them uh, who were filled with the Holy Spirit and believed and baptized would have gone back to Alexandria. I would have thought that maybe Apollos could have heard something about Jesus and the gospel, but it didn't say that. It says that what he knew about Jesus, he taught accurately. Well, what could you know about Jesus just through the preaching and teaching of John the Baptist. So I did some looking. I looked at Matthew 3 and John 1 and John 3, and I'm not going to give you all the, the addresses. I'm going to tell you what I found. Apollos knew and taught. He preached that the prophets predicted the ministry of John the Baptist to prepare the way for and announce who was the Messiah. Apollos would begin by preaching that legalism can't save anyone. Rather, we must confess and repent of our sins. He would have preached the Old Testament prophets predicted Jesus' life. Apollos taught Jesus is the Messiah, who was predicted by the prophets, and he has brought the kingdom of God. Apollos taught that Jesus was God's beloved son that he existed before John and was sent by God from heaven to speak God's words. Apollos taught that whatever Jesus taught was the word of God. Being a disciple of John, Apollos would have been taught that God has given Jesus the Holy Spirit without measure and will baptize people with water and fire. 
He would have taught that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and God has given all things into his hands. He would have taught that the judgment day is coming and whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life and whoever does not obey the Son will never have eternal life, but the wrath of God remains on them. I think we can see just by the teachings of John the Baptist how Apollos' teaching about Jesus was very accurate. How about you guys? That's pretty good theology right there. And that's all from me spending a couple hours looking at John the Baptist's teaching and, and boiling it all down together for you. So Priscilla and Aquila hear him in the synagogue that Sabbath day, and he's teaching, and they're like, wow. This guy has a message, almost. See, he knew it up into the teachings of Jesus somewhere, you know, because the message on the Baptist, and then it kind of ends, and, you know, maybe a little bit about the ministry and life of Jesus was circulating, like I said, part of Mark's manuscript, piece of Mark's gospel, beginning of a gospel was circulating, So there was a little more known about Jesus' ministry. I don't know. He didn't know the whole story, obviously, right? Because Apollos didn't preach the cross. That Jesus, he didn't preach how Jesus became the Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. He didn't preach how believing in Jesus brought eternal life. He believed Jesus was the Lamb of God, right? He believed Jesus was the Messiah, and you had to believe in him to have eternal life. But how? He didn't understand that the Messiah would die. He didn't understand that the Messiah would rise from the dead. Did he have to know that to be saved? No, I don't think so. I think he's got a pretty complete saving picture. Listen, you say, I don't know. Listen, listen, listen. Nowhere do Priscilla and Aquila say, Apollos needs to get saved. Nowhere do they say, "Uh, we led him to the Lord. It wasn't necessary. All he needed was to have those amazing elements added that, hey, the Messiah died, but he rose from the dead. And Apollos, can you imagine the wow moment that he had, right? When he realized, oh man, everything I've been preaching, yes, it's true, it's true. But, but now I see, oh yes, I get it now. Oh, he's in heaven. He's reigning in heaven. I mean, can you imagine this man and the excitement he had? To have the light go on and now everything he taught just falls into place. He didn't have to learn everything. He just, what he already knew was like, oh, it was like, Everything came together for him. And I'm telling you, here's this guy that was boiling over in his fervency for the word of God. And if he was doing that, only knowing John's message, you know, and what I told you that, can you imagine now what he was understanding the fullness of the gospel? Can you imagine this man? He was unstoppable. This man had that wow moment. Did you have that? Did you ever have a wow moment when maybe it was just understanding Jesus or it was understanding something in your, in your faith that just clicked for you and it was like, oh, anybody have something like that in your life? Yeah, we understand Apollos now, don't we? 
We understand he came from a really scary background. We understand he knew a lot. But God had him in the right time, the right place. No, he didn't know all the facts, but he knew enough to be saved. And then when the complete picture came together, this guy went crazy. The story continues. Here we are, sharing the story. We have our Bibles because of part of what's in this story, don't we? We have the sure word of prophecy because of this story. We understand how God can work 300 years to accomplish something so that something can happen today, maybe right now in this room. That's amazing how God is in control of time and space and of our lives, your life. Just so encouraging.
shall be moved And the power of the gospel shall prevail For we know Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul Ministries on podcast. You can easily play this week or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your vice in only a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries at your iTunes store now. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. And this faith is what he spoke of in verse 3, and manifest also in love. And this perseverance and faith in the middle of verse 4 is in the midst of something. All your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. So he says we speak proudly, or literally you could translate this boast. We boast. And folks, whenever we as Christians hear the word pride and boasting, it's an anathema to us, right? And rightfully so, we get a reaction. Pride, boasting, right? Because usually it's in the context of self or man, right? Yet here, the Apostle Paul is not boasting in the Thessalonians. He is boasting in their flourishing faith and increasing love and the perseverance and faith in the midst of their persecutions and afflictions. And that is what God is doing. He's boasting in what God is doing in the lives of the Thessalonians. And he's boasting to the other churches. Look at these Thessalonians trust Christ in the midst of all they're enduring. They're flourishing in their faith, and their love is overflowing. Take a look at this. And we need to take a look at it, and that's why God's given it to us, right? You see, if we boast, we're not to boast in man. He's not boasting in the Thessalonians. He's not saying they're so great. He's saying God is awesome and great, and look at what he's doing. Because the Apostle Paul would never say that we boast in men. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
He would never say we boasted men. As he talks about the foolishness of the gospel to shame the wise, he then explains, you see, God made the gospel look foolish so that you'd be shamed if you're not willing to humble yourself as a child. You'd be wise unto your own damnation. He says to the believers who believe the foolish gospel, the simplicity of it, he said, 1 Corinthians 1.26, he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that's when he got saved, that not many of you were wise according to the flesh, Not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world, that's us, to shame the wise, that's non-believers. And God has chosen the weak things of the world, that's us, to shame the things which are strong, that's those who who don't know Christ. He says, and the base things of the world, that's us. And the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that's us that he might nullify the things that are. That's those who are prideful within themselves. That what? No man should boast before God. That's man's problem, his pride. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. He did it. Who became wisdom to us, wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I believe that's a paraphrase of what we see in Jeremiah 9.23. And we've sung the little song with that, but it's a wonderful portion. Turn to Jeremiah 9.23. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast about this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Paul will say it later on in 1 Corinthians 3, if anyone boasts, boast in the Lord. And Paul is boasting in the Lord here, to the churches. Now the Apostle Paul did have to boast in a sense, but when he boasted, he always boasted about what God was doing, about his own life. 2 Corinthians 10 the Corinthians were listening to false apostles. You could look see that chapter 11. They were yoking themselves, chapter 6. And the apostle Paul, to defend his apostleship, has to boast in what God was doing through him. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 13. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere in which God has apportioned us to measure, to reach even as far as you. And then verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 10. But he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. For not he who commands himself is approved, but whom the Lord commands. When you boast, it's in what God has done. And when he's boasting these Thessalonians, he's not saying, look at how great they are. He's saying, look at what God has done in their lives. Their faith is flourishing abundantly, and they are loving one another. It's overflowing. So back in chapter 1, verse 4, back in Second Thessalonians. He says, therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God. And what's the boasting about? For your perseverance and faith. Now, he doesn't say love because inherent in love from the verse before, inherent in faith is love. Your perseverance and faith. You see, there are people out there that have external love, but they don't have faith. That's not real love, right? So he says, your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. We boast proudly among the churches of you for two things, your perseverance and faith in the midst of all the stuff you're going through. 
Now, the term translated perseverance here comes from the Greek word hupomone. You may recognize it. Mone means to remain or abide. It's the same thing Jesus said, abide in me. Remain. Hupo is under. Remain under. That's perseverance. That's endurance. If you're going through a trial and you know the Lord is allowing it and you're not to escape it, you remain under it. That's enduring. You're remaining under. He says for your perseverance, you could translate it in endurance, but I'll show you why he doesn't in a minute. You see, it's a remaining under. And don't forget where endurance comes from. Endurance doesn't come from pulling up your spiritual bootstraps to pull yourself through. Endurance is directly related to faith being proven. Turn to James chapter 1, James 1. So he's saying, hey, we thank God. We boast about you guys for your perseverance and your faith. But where does perseverance come from? James 1 verse 2. Consider it all. That means to mechanically reckon as if you were using an accounting system. There's no emotion to it. Consider, reckon something to be true. Consider it all joy. When you're in a trial, it's not joyful, but you reckon it to be joy. God's going to bring joy out of it. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you what? Encounter, the word speaks of a ship coming up and hitting a reef. All of a sudden you've hit it. Encountering various trials, knowing... That the testing, the word testing literally means to test to prove something genuine. When they would test metals, they would test them to prove that it is genuine. That the testing of your faith does what? Produces endurance. When God allows your faith to be tested and he shows you it's genuine, you really are trusting in Christ, you really are trusting in him, that produces endurance in the trials. It produces endurance. And he says here, and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he says back in our passage, you're enduring. And we speak proudly of you to the churches about that. You're trusting Christ and it is producing endurance. You're remaining under. You're not escaping. You're not trying to get out of it. You're enduring. And then he talks about your faith and your faith. We talked about that already. They're trusting God and they're enduring. So we share with the churches, wow, look at the Thessalonians. Praise the Lord. They're trusting Christ. But notice what he says. It's in the midst of something. In the midst, end of verse 4, in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. We just go, oh, afflictions, persecutions. I don't want to hear that. You know, it's okay to have a reaction to not wanting to go through evil. The Lord Jesus was willing to do the Father's will, but he recognized what would happen on the cross. He said, if this could pass, he wasn't sinning. He said, but yet not my will, but thy will be done. We pray, maybe, Lord, it could pass. But if not, Lord God, I trust you. You're going to help me endure. You're going to grow my faith in this. You're going to be glorified in it. You're going to do good out of it, as we'll see in a minute. I'm going to understand your word rightly and see it and apply it to my heart rightly. So he says here, in the midst of your persecutions and afflictions, we'll talk about those two words in a minute. Doesn't sound good. He says, which you endure. Interesting now, because he uses a different word. Often what we saw earlier translated perseverance is translated endure. But here's why they didn't translate, because of this word here, which they needed to translate as endure. This is a different word. It's on echo And it speaks of exercising self-restraint 
putting up with or bearing with. It's translated forbearing in Ephesians 4.2. Bearing with in Colossians 3.13. It speaks to holding up, to put up with. It even is translated, how long shall I put up with you in this sense? I bear with this. So he's saying your persecutions and afflictions, which you are bearing under. You're not only enduring, but you're bearing under those. Now, what are these things? What are these persecutions? Well, the word persecutions here, it's plural, means multiple persecutions literally means to chase or pursue. It came to speak of persecution. So when one persecutes, they don't let up. They pursue you with words or physically even. We've seen that in a sense with the way people speak evil of our leaders, right? Pursuing, 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 not letting up, right? You've seen that. It's pursuing, persecuting, either with words or physically. The term afflictions is also in the plural. It speaks of multiple afflictions. It comes from the Greek word thlipsis, which means pressure. When we are going under difficulties, it's like we're being squeezed in. It's pressure. It says they're afflictions. They pressure you. They bring pressure upon you. They inflict you. And there's multiple ones. But you guys, you are enduring. Now, what were these afflictions? What were they? Look down a little farther. We're going to see this next week, Lord willing, but... Notice what he says in verse 5. We're not going to study it today, but I will show you what these afflictions are. He says, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of what? The kingdom of God for which you are indeed suffering. They were not suffering for being jerky Christians. They were not suffering for their own sin. They were suffering for the kingdom of God. And he says, for after all, it's only just for God to replay with affliction those who afflict you. There were people afflicting them. They were suffering. End of five. And in end of six, those who afflict you. This is real. Not all have faith. There are those who persecute believers and afflict them. And he says there, ultimately, you're suffering for the kingdom of God. Remember I shared in Second Timothy already, indeed, those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. The reality is, when you want to do the right thing, You're going to be persecuted. Not always, but you will be persecuted. Remember what Jesus said in John 15. He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. The reality is they were persecuted. We know from back in First Thessalonians chapter 2 that they had the persecution. You can read this later. We saw it when we studied it. They were persecuted by their own countrymen in the same way the Jews who came to faith were persecuted by their own countrymen, the same ones who put Jesus on the cross. They're not pleasing but hostile to all men, Paul says. We also see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and I'll just mention it since time's running out, that in the persecution, Satan was also tempting them. It's in there too. Now, we're not being driven out of town, folks. We're not being killed yet. But at times, we will experience persecution if we are the blessed, if we are allowing Christ's righteousness to be manifest in our lives. Matthew 5, turn there as we finish up here. Matthew 5. He says in verse 10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for what? The sake of righteousness. He says, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're blessed. 
if you've been persecuted for Christ's righteousness in you. Blessed are you when men do what? This is persecution, by the way. Cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. That's persecution. That does happen to us. If you want to follow Christ, you're going to be persecuted, and that's certainly going to happen to you. He says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. So these brothers and sisters were being afflicted for their faith in Christ. They were enduring. They were trusting in Jesus, bearing up under it, not escaping, but trusting Christ. And God would ultimately take care of them. He would deal out retribution. Notice who the people are who were persecuting them. Verse 8 in Second Thessalonians 1. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the type of people who were persecuting. They don't have a relationship with God and they have not obeyed the gospel. They haven't believed the command to repent. They haven't obeyed that. They haven't believed the command and obeyed the command to trust in Jesus Christ. And usually this persecution comes through the religious. We see it all throughout Scripture. It's those who are religious that usually persecute those who are true believers. That's what we see usually. Now, again, I don't have time for it, but when we went through the book of First Peter, we saw that God uses these persecutions for our good. He uses the testing of our faith to produce joy when Christ comes and joy now. He uses it to enable us to be ready to give an account for why we have hope. He uses it to open doors for the gospel when we respond rightly in the midst of difficulties and persecution, when they slander us and say all kinds of evil. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. You see, persecution and suffering for Christ is an evidence you're his. And remaining under it is an evidence, as we see. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you for your testing or for your proving, your proving of your faith, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share what? The sufferings of Christ. Keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. It's going to bring great joy. If you are reviled for what? the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He's saying if it's happening because of Christ, you're blessed, you're his, it's manifesting. But don't be persecuted for sin. That's what he says. By no means if anyone suffer as a murderer, thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler, just someone who meddles in people's business. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. The reality is the Lord is affirming our faith and who we are, affirming who we are, and he's manifesting it, and it is causing and bringing about endurance in our lives, and it's bringing glory to him. You see, we need to understand what God is doing through these things, and when we do, we're going to trust him even more. Our faith is going to flourish. We need to understand from the word how he's using it even to open doors for the gospel. You can look throughout First Peter. I don't have time for that. And he's using it to give us joy right now and eternal joy when he comes. When I see it right, it enables me to remain under when Jesus is holding me up under that. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love for each one of you towards one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. He's saying, look at these Thessalonians. 
You see their persecutions, their afflictions? They're enduring. They're trusting in Christ. Their faith in him abounds. Praise God. So it's an encouragement for us. When you encounter persecution, look at the Thessalonians. Look at them. You see, your persecution and the difficulties you go through are opportunities and venues to trust Christ and to give him glory, that others would praise him and glorify him and that people might be saved. ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.